all the cool pictures like, like Brenton talked about on Wednesday, but I, I, I do get really the uplifting part. And this was a message that these, these men and women of those seven churches needed, and they needed to hear, and they needed to rely on. And that's what we're going to look at this morning as we look at the victory that comes through Jesus Christ. But before we get into Revelation chapter 21 and 22, we're going to skip back a little bit and cover a little bit of what Danny talked about, just a quick review of that. And I'm going to, I'm going to speed through that, but I think it, the implications of what he talked about shows through in the victory that comes through Jesus. So as we go back to chapter 12, as we begin that chapter, we see three people introduced. First of all, we see this woman who is considered to be Israel, who's representative of Israel. And this woman is with child. In the next couple of verses, you see this dragon introduced. And this, again, this dragon is, is Satan. And Satan has one job and one goal, and that's to prevent Christ from going through with what he is about to go through, to go through with that sacrifice, to establish that church. In 5 through 6, we see that she gave birth to this child. She gave birth to this child, and that child is Jesus Christ. So as we go on, we see that this battle is raging. There's this war in heaven, or as Danny talked about, the war with Michael. And we see that as this battle goes on, the battle is fought, God reigns victorious, and Satan loses. Satan loses this battle. And what we see in verse 11 is that there are two factors that caused him to lose this battle. The first was the blood of the lamb, the shedding of the blood of Christ. The second in that same verse says, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Those were the two reasons that Satan lost. Because Christ was willing to sacrifice himself to shed his blood and that there were men and women who were willing to testify of the life-saving blood of Jesus. That's why he lost. And I think it's interesting, if you were to go watch a documentary, I like documentaries, if you were to go watch a documentary of Jesus Christ and his life, and you knew nothing about Jesus Christ, you would think that as soon as they nailed him to the cross and they lifted him above the earth and he died, you would think the battle was lost. But that's the exact moment that Satan lost that battle. Because that victory came through Jesus Christ. And at that point, Satan came to this realization. He realized he, realized he couldn't touch Jesus. He realized Jesus was out of his reach. It was over. So in verses 14 through 16, you can read that God protected this woman, Israel. And then you go on and you see that Satan wanted to continue that opposition anyway. And in verse, 12, or verse 17 of chapter 12, it says, When the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who is he talking about when he's talking about the rest of the offspring? Well, if you look at Galatians chapter 3.29, I think we get a good indication of that. He says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the church. That's who he's talking about. That Satan had a job, and he was going to pursue the church. He was going to pursue those who are obedient to God's commands and those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. That was his goal. And that's exactly what he did. And we see the tool that he used in Revelation 13 and verse 1 where he talks about this beast coming out of the sea. 
That was Satan's tool. And that beast we know as the Roman Empire. That Roman Empire was going to be used to persecute them, to try to to get them to turn their backs on Jesus Christ. That That was the tool of Satan at that point. In verse 7, we see that, again, heavy persecution is indicated for this church. The church will be persecuted. Those in in Rome at that time who professed Jesus Christ would go through a heavy persecution. And you think about the situation to those in Rome at that time, those Christians who professed Jesus Christ in Rome at that time, who were not willing to turn their back. The situation was dire. The Roman Empire, the most powerful empire in the world at that time, was about to come down on them. And the people of Rome who didn't follow Jesus Christ felt pretty strongly about their their empire. And we read that in verse 4 of chapter 13. He says, And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? Who can fight against this beast? Who is powerful enough to dare try to take down Rome? Then we see the answer to that in Revelation 19 and verse 11. Then I, then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteous, righteousness he judges and makes war. Jesus Christ was powerful enough to take care of Rome. Because there's victory in Jesus Christ. And we see exactly that exact thing happening in verse 19. He says, And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in the present who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake that burns with sulfur. Victory came through Jesus. So as we go into these last two chapters, what we see, John's visions change a little bit. And John's visions go to this idea of the church, and we'll talk about this in a minute, of the church in a time when Rome no longer has control, when Rome has been defeated. And that's what we see as we go into these last two, church, or last two chapters. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 5, I want to start here because I think what's said here is very interesting. In Revelation 21 and verse 5, he says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I'm making all things new. Again, just like we said throughout this whole study, we need to go back and we need to look through the eyes of who this letter is written to. Revelation was not written to Noah Hall and 2022. I'm glad I got that right. I've been saying 2002 all week. It was not written to me. Can I gain from it? Yes, I can. But the problem is, is I have to look through it through the eyes of those who this letter is being written to. And we are talking about a letter written to men and women in the church who are about to be pushed to the limit, who are about to lose Everything, in some cases, even their lives. And now what we see here is this idea of making all things new. Well, what does that mean? 
What does he mean by making all things new? And I think we can get a better idea of looking at other symbolic language, just like we have in every other study. We've looked at other symbolic language that helps us understand what he's talking about here. And I think Isaiah gives us that symbolic language that's very similar. similar. In Isaiah 42 and verse 9, he says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you, hear this, this idea of these new things coming about. If you look at Isaiah 43 and verse 18, he says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Again, that sounds very similar, doesn't it? Similar to what he's saying in Revelation 21 and verse 5 about making all things new. We get the answer to what he's talking about here in Matthew chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. And we're not going to go over there, but I can tell you what he's talking about. We see the fulfillment of this prophecy, and the fulfillment was the coming of Jesus Christ. And we know that through, through Jesus Christ, all things are made new. All things are made new through Christ. So when we look at Revelation 21 and verse 5, what we see is that all things are made new for that church. All things are being made new for the church at that point. If we back up to Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1, we get a little more information about this, what he's talking about. And when we say in his church, what are we talking about here? Most people who go look at Revelation 21 and verse 2, or 21 and chapter 22, look at this as a picture of heaven. But I think if we look at the context and we look at what he's talking about, he's not talking about heaven. There are some things that could apply to heaven that might be kind of a double meaning there, but he is talking about the church here. In Revelation 21, in verse 1, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. It's got to be talking about heaven, right? Not necessarily. And I think, again, if we look at the context, we look at what he's saying and how he describes this, we understand he's actually talking, that new heaven and new earth is actually talking about the church. He's actually talking about the church. And what he's talking about is a new beginning for the church. A time where the church no longer is under the threat of the Roman Empire and under the threat of the persecution that came with that. A new age for the church. That's what he's talking about here. And I think, once again, if we go back and we look at symbolic language, we can understand exactly what he's talking about here. In Isaiah 65, we, again, we see very sim- similar language here. In verse 17, he says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in the sound, is this in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Is he talking about heaven here? No. What he's talking about here is the fall of the Babylonian empire. What he's talking about here is no longer being persecuted by the Babylonian empire. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? Gives you a new outlook on Revelation 21 when he talks about this new heaven and new earth in both, both places. In Isaiah, the Babylonian empire. In Rome, or in Revelation, the Roman empire. That persecution is gone. It's a new time. It's a new day. 
And what a wonderful blessing that would be for those members of the church at that point when they understand that that persecution would not last forever and that there's hope in a time that seems hopeless. As we go on, in that same verse, he says, and the sea was no more. And there's two possible explanations for this as we look at that. First of all, if you look back at Revelation 13 in verse 1, Danny talked about it Wednesday. He talked about this idea of the beast or Rome coming from the sea. When you think about that, if the sea's gone, Rome is gone. So that's one possible explanation of that. Another explanation of that would be the fact that the sea no longer separates God from man. When you look at Revelation chapter 4 and verse 6, we see the sea is separating God and man at that point. Now, when you get to Revelation 15, you see that, that the redeemed are standing near that sea. Now, when you get here to Revelation 21, that sea is no more. There's no, more, there's no separation from God. Why? Because Christ's sacrifice broke that separation down. His shed blood covers us. And no longer are we separated from God because we have a forgiveness of our sin. So two possible explanations of that that go, go with this idea of this new beginning for the church because these men and women were covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're covered by God. And we'll talk more about this as we go on. Now, as we go on in Revelation 21 and verse two, he says, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So what I wanna point out here is if you go back to verse one and now we're in verses two and three, we see three different names. First of all, we see this, this name of the new heaven and new earth. Secondly, we see the name New Jerusalem. Thirdly, we see this, this dwelling place of God, or if you look at the King James Version, the tabernacle of God. When we look at these three names, we might think, oh, those are different things. But really what those are talking about are all the same thing. It's talking about the church. These three names are different names used for the church. And again, think about what we've talked about. We're not, he's not, this writing is not just going to come out and say the, the Roman government in the church. That's not what he's doing. We have three different names, but when we look at the context, we see what he's talking about. And that's what I want to look at for just a minute so we understand what he's talking about. Now, in verse 2, one thing that he says is it's prepared, this new Jerusalem is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Prepared for a bride, where, where have we heard that before? Well, if you go on in Revelation 21 and verse 9, we get a little more clear statement on what that is. He says, come, I will show you, and, and let, me, let me phrase this, right at chapter 9, he starts giving an in-depth description of this new Jerusalem. So in verse 9, he says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So apparently, this bride adorned for her husband is the wife of the lamb. Well, who's the lamb? Well, we know through Scripture that Jesus Christ is the lamb. This new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. Well, if we go to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, we get a, a, it's laid out who this bride of Christ is for us. 
Paul talking here, he's speaking on this relationship between a husband and wife. And you know who he's comparing it to? The relationship of a husband and wife is compared with Christ and his bride. It's compared with Christ and the church. So again, the new heaven and new earth is representative of the church. The new Jerusalem is representative of the church. He goes on in this same section in verse 3, and he talks about the dwelling place of God or the tabernacle of God. This tabernacle is God's dwelling place. In the Old Testament, the holy place was found in the tabernacle, and this is where God dwelled. But do you remember in verse 5, he says, I'm going to make all things new? It's different now. In the church, it's different. Why? Because God no longer dwells in temples. God no longer dwells in temples made with hands. Where he dwells is within us. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 16. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. He's talking about the church. All three times he's talking about the church. Why is that important? You have a lot of people, again, who are about to face maybe the worst time in their lives. Where can they find victory? Through Jesus in the church. And that's what this is all about. In verse four, we see another verse that, again, people say, how can this mean the church? This has to mean heaven. Well, he says, Revelation 21, verse 4, he says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It sounds like heaven. And yes, heaven is probably like that, but that's not what he's talking about here. Again, let's look at sim- similar symbolic language. Isaiah 25 and verse 8, very similar language used to talk about the deliverance from Moab from their persecution. Isaiah 30 and 19, very similar language, talking about the deliverance from Assyria and their persecution. Isaiah 65 and 19, where we talked about earlier, talking about wiping away the tears from their eyes. Very similar, talking about deliverance from the Babylonian Empire. Again, maybe this does apply to heaven, but what he's talking about here is the church. This is where they find their peace. This is where they find their victory. In Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 6 and he makes a statement. He makes an exclamation. He says, I am, it is done. I am the beginning and I am the end. And then he goes on and he says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So as we look in this verse, we get in these next couple of verses, we get really two requirements for these these people who are a part of this kingdom, part of the new Jerusalem. Two requirements. First of all, that they thirst for Christ. Well, what does that mean? Have you ever been out working in the sun and you feel like, I'm going to die if I don't get some water or a Gatorade or, or a Coke or whatever. I'm going to die. You would do anything. In fact, you're probably going to stop working and run to the convenience store and go get you something, right? You're willing to do anything because you thirst for it. It's your desire. It's what you hope for. Same thing here. I think of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6 in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
What he's telling these men and women in the church at this time is that you have to thirst for Christ. It has to consume you. It has to be your number one goal. Christ has to be what you live for. Because make no mistake, these people were going to be pushed to the limit. And if they had, did not have Christ as the number one authority in their lives, they were going to walk away. They were going to turn their backs. But he says, if you thirst, if you have this thirst, you're going to be able to conquer. In verse 7, he says, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. If you look at the King James, he says, overcome. This idea of overcoming. If you have a thirst, if he's your number one priority, if that's who you're dedicated to, you're going to make it through this one way or the other. You're going to, you're going to have a better life after, whether it be in this world or in the world after. And we see this idea of overcoming, and I'm not going to go through this whole, this whole chart here, but Revelation as we look through it, we see if they overcome, they would eat of the tree of life. They would eat of hidden manna. They would be given a new name. They would have power and rule over the nations, and so on. It was all about these men and women who were going to face this battle, making it through intact, still a part of that new Jerusalem through their dedication to him. But the problem was is there would be some who didn't make it. And we see that in verse 8. He says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Again, if you're not completely dedicated and you are about to be killed for what you believe, you're probably going to walk away. You're probably going to turn your back. You're probably going to give in. And how many people did that? these people facing persecution, how many of them gave in? How many started to worship Caesar? How many turned their backs on God? How many just didn't believe? He says, if you are part of that group, you have a choice. If you're part of that group, you're gonna be part of the judgment. You're gonna be part of the second death. So again, we see a contrast. These men and women have a choice. They're either gonna choose to stick with Christ or they're going to choose to turn to Rome. That was their choice. And I think it's interesting as we enter this next section in verse 9, Jesus starts talking, or John starts talking about this new Jerusalem and the bride of Christ, or the bride of the Lamb. He starts talking about the church, and he gives this in-depth description of this church. And I think it's interesting when you compare what he calls the bride of the Lamb when you look back to chapter 17, and he's talking about this great prostitute, Rome. Again, you have a choice. And think of the contrast there. The bride of the lamb or the great prostitute. The church or Rome. They had a choice. And what he does in these next several verses is he lets these men and women know the value that God places on them as a part of that new Jerusalem, as a part of the church. And that's what we get in these next several verses, and it's beautiful. The first thing that he talks about, and I kind of separated this because it's amazing when you think about it. In verse 11, he uses this rare stone to describe the church. He says, it's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. 
I don't know what a jasper is. I have no clue. Some people think it's a diamond. I don't know. I would think it's probably more valuable than a diamond. I don't know. We don't know what he's talking about, but what we do know is that it's rare and it's valuable. And in the eyes of God, his people, his kingdom, his church, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and earth, the tabernacle of God, he sees them as a rare and beautiful stone. But what I find more interesting than that, yeah, that, that's great, right? He sees that beauty in us, and that, that's wonderful. But I want us to see where else this stone was used to describe something. In Revelation chapter four and verse three, it says, and he who sat there had, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper. He's talking about God. This is talking about God. God had the appearance of Jasper. The glory of God is described by this stone, and yet, G, and yet God looks at the church and describes it as this same stone. The beauty. The, that's, su- that's such a hope-building thing for these men and women to know that the creator of the universe sees them with that kind of beauty, with that kind of importance. How wonderful that is. Going on in verse 12, he says, it had a, speaking of this new Jerusalem, he says it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates of the names of the 12 tribes on the, of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On, east, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with the rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of a jewel. And then he goes through every one of those jewels. Then he picks up and he says, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street was the city of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. So again, we see this description of this city, which is representative of the church in the eyes of God. And he starts out by talking about the gates. And we see kind of an artist's rendition of what this city might look, look like. It's a big city, right? And it looks beautiful. But one thing he talks about is there were four walls, and on each wall were three gates. Each wall had three gates, and on each gate was the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And you think about the significance of those 12 tribes of Israel. They were, they were the beginning of that. They were the beginning of this whole thing. And through them, Jesus was brought about through that tribe of Judah. The Messiah was born. That's the gates. He talks about the gates being made of pearl, and Jerry McCorkle describes this wonderfully, I think. He talks about the idea that the pearl is the only stone that comes from suffering. Because you have an oyster that gets a grain of sand in it, and it starts to secrete this liquid because it's suffering and it's in pain. And this liquid hardens around that piece of sand. That pearl was created out of suffering. And you think about the church. Where was it created? It was created on the back of Jesus Christ, on the suffering of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thought that is. And when you think about these gates, these gates depict those who were dedicated to God before the cross. You think about those sacrifices that were made to roll forward their sin until that sin could be paid for. 
That's what this is talking about. They're part of that church. The next thing he talks about is the foundations. And he says these 12 foundations had the name of an apostle on them, one of the 12 apostles. And again, we think about that. The new Jerusalem is founded on the apostles. In my last uh, lesson, I guess last month, I talked about John 14. And we talked a little bit about that idea that the apostles were the ones who really helped establish that church through Jesus Christ. They were given the wisdom. They were given the knowledge. They were given the ability to perform those miracles. And they went out and they helped establish that church through the word of God. That's what this is talking about. That's what this is representative of. He talks about this idea that they were covered in these rare and beautiful stones. Again, these beautiful stones are, are used over and over again. But what he's talking about here is the beauty of the redeemed in the eyes of God. You are beautiful in the eyes of God. That's what he's talking about. These men and women who were, who were possibly going to die were beautiful in the eyes of God, and they were important to him. And what these 12 foundations represent or depict is those who follow Christ after the cross. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19, Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you, are also, you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. They were the foundation, and because of that, the church was established. The church grew. And we're here today, and we can be a part of that New Jerusalem because of that. He talks about the form of the city, the fact that it's this very large expanse. He talks about it being a cube. The length, the width, and the height are equal. And he says it's 12,000 stadia. Again, I didn't know what stadia was, but if you look at 12,000 stadia, they say it's about 1,500 miles on each side. Now, that's a picture of basically North America. That's a huge chunk. That's a large area, right? But is he saying that the church is actually 1,500 miles every way? No, that's not what he's saying. He's just saying that to show the glory of the church in the eyes of God. How, how, how much glory it is, it, how gloriful it is for him to see that church and those, those people to be his people, to be his bride. That's what he's talking about. He talks about the idea of the thickness of the walls were 144 cubits. They say a cubit is about 18 inches. That would be from your elbow to the tip of your finger. 144 of those, that's a wide wall, Right? What do we know about walls? And specifically, what did these men and women at this time know about thick walls? Well, what did thick walls do? It kept the evil, the enemy out. And it kept the good in. It provided protection. And that's exactly what the church, the new Jerusalem, would do for these men and women about to go through this horrible persecution. And I'm sure the comfort that they got from that that understanding motivated them and helped them to overcome like we talked about late, earlier. It provided comfort for them, something that no amount of persecution could take away from them. That understanding that they had something far better. They were a part of something far more important than that Roman Empire, far more powerful than that Roman Empire. 
He goes on in verse 22 and he says, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord, of, the Lord God, the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon or to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light, gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will all the nations walk and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into, the glory, into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So as we go in these next few verses, we see this idea of a safe dwelling place with God in this new Jerusalem. He says, first of all, there's no need for a physical temple. And we've talked a little bit about this. Again, there was a separation between God and man from the garden, from Genesis 3. There was a separation between God and man because of sin. Think about that. Only the high priest could enter. Only the high priest could get anywhere close, and there were still tons of restrictions on that. But now in the new Jerusalem, there's no need for a physical temple because, again, God lives within his followers. Acts 17, chapter 4, we read that God doesn't live in temples made by man. In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16, we see that we are the temple of God and his spirit dwells within us. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, a wonderful passage, he says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of God, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can approach God with confidence. Why? Because Jesus Christ died on the cross, because he sacrificed himself, because he, was, he died, he was buried, and he was resurrected for us. And because we are a part of that church, because we are a part of that new Jerusalem, we can have a confidence to approach God. Because the sin that once separated us no longer does. We have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. Something that has not always been true. He talks about this idea that there's no need of the sun, that God is a light. And I think this is amazing to think about. And I think back to what Danny talked about the other night, on Wednesday night. As he was ending, he talked about this idea that the church, there was really no reason that the church should have survived this. If you look at it from a plainly human world point view, the church should not have survived that Roman Empire. Shouldn't have. You're talking about the strongest empire in the world. But yet what happened? What happened is they were a light in an evil world. They were a light in the darkness. We open our garage door sometimes and we leave it open at night and we have these lights and I bet there's a million, I'm not even exaggerating, a million moths in there. Janet hates it. They're attracted to that light, right? Well, same thing. If you live in this dark world and you have somebody's light in that world, what's gonna happen? It's gonna attract other people and that's what happened. It attracted people. Even in the midst of horrible persecution, the church grew because God was the light through them. He talks about this idea that only the saved would enter. Those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, those who obey the gospel, are going to be a part of that new Jerusalem. And then we transition to chapter 22. And in chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, he says, Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night, the, and night will be no more. They will, need, they will need no light of the lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever. So again, we go into this idea, still talking about this new Jerusalem, but looking at the redeemed who are redeemed through Jesus Christ. And he talks about this idea of this tree of water, and, or this tree of life and this water of life. And in Genesis chapter 3 and 22, we're not going to read this, but you can go look. And this is the point after Adam and Eve had given in and had sinned, where that tree of life was no longer accessible, was no longer available. Humans lost access to that tree of life because of sin. But yet Christ solved that problem through his sacrifice, through his death, burial, and resurrection. And now the redeemed have access to that tree of life. And we look at that tree of life in Revelation, it talks about how it bears fruit every month, how its leaves have this healing power. And that's symbolic of the church, that God will take care of those who are redeemed, of those who have submitted to him and obeyed the gospel. The church through Jesus Christ, brings spiritual healing. It brings, again, hope, especially to those men and women who had little at that time. They had access to that tree of life. And we see some promises to these seven churches. The fact that if they overcome, if they stay the course, if they endure, they're going to be allowed to eat of that tree of life. By entering that new Jerusalem, they have hope of eternal life through Christ. And what does that mean? That means that no matter what I go through in this life, no matter if they beat me, no matter if they kill me, no matter what I go through, I still have hope because of Jesus Christ. And that's what this is all about. That's what this book is all about. That They were going to go through trouble, but they could endure it. Why? Because they had Christ Jesus. And they could have victory through that. And it was going to last far longer than that Roman Empire. The kingdom of God would last far longer than any human empire. Because it's going to be an eternal kingdom. It is an eternal kingdom. And what a wonderful thought and a a comforting thought for these men and women at this time. He also talks about this idea that the curse was removed. And again, think back to Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve made that decision, what happened? The curse of death was brought on all men. everyone, Everyone of us is going to die. It brought death. But the fact is, is through Christ's sacrifice... No longer do we have to die spiritually. We're going to die physically, but no longer do we have to die spiritually. Again, these men and women who were facing death didn't have to worry about it. They didn't have to dread it. Yeah, it was going to be bad for a little while. It was going to be painful for a small amount of time, but in comparison to eternity, it was just a short amount of time. And what comfort would that have been to somebody going through a persecution like they were about to go through? And the fact that they were going to reign forever 
Again, in the eyes of the seven churches, I'm sure they thought Rome was unbeatable. But the fact is, in the eyes of God, Rome didn't stand a chance. Again, no kingdom is gonna last forever, but that kingdom will. And, and what would you choose? Would you choose that Roman Empire that you know is gonna fall? It might be easy for a little while, but would you thirst for Christ? And would you give it everything you had so that you could overcome and be a part of the kingdom that's gonna last forever? That's the choice. And that was the choice given to these men and women who are facing that persecution. What an amazing message. What amazing message to these men and women who, again, were going to face the hardest time of their lives, who may lose everything, including their lives, to know that they have something better waiting because they're a part of that new Jerusalem, because they're a part of the church. And I think I talked to you guys about this idea. I've come to the same conclusion in every lesson I, I put together. For the last several lessons, it comes to the same conclusion, every single one. And it's interesting to me, but it's all about our focus. It's all about what we're focused on. It's all about what we're dedicated to. And that same thing applies to these men and women going through this persecution. Where's their focus gonna be? Are they gonna focus on how horrible it is in this life and all these bad things that are happening in this life? Or are they gonna come to the understanding that no matter what, no matter what they go through, they have Christ. They're a part of a kingdom that's never going to end. And that's victory. That's victory for a bunch of people who could not find a good day. It's victory to know that Christ will never leave them, that they will be a part of that new Jerusalem for the rest of their lives, for the rest of their eternal lives. And nothing can take that away. And again, Revelation is not written to me in 2022, but I can tell you what, we can learn from it. And we can gain knowledge and we can gain hope. You know why? Because we all go through horrible times. We go, we go through these things that are hard to deal with. But when we can change our mindset and understand that we have something far better waiting for us, that can motivate us and it can help us to overcome and make it through those things that we go through in life. And what a wonderful message that is. If you're here this morning and you've never obeyed the gospel, don't walk away today without doing that. Be a part of that new Jerusalem. You can have access to that by obeying the gospel this morning. If you're here and maybe the pressures of life have caused you to turn your back and walk away, we can pray for you, we can pray with you, we can support you. Maybe you just need the prayers of the church. We can help you with that if you come to the front as we stand and sing.